Welcome to the FinTech One-on-One Podcast, episode number 360. This is your host, Peter Renton, chairman and co-founder of Lended FinTech. Before we get started, I want to talk about the 10th annual Lended FinTech USA event. We are so excited to be back in the financial capital of the world, New York City, in person on May 25th and 26th. It feels like fintech is on fire right now with so much change happening, and we will be distilling all that for you at New York's biggest fintech event of the year. We have our best lineup of keynote speakers ever with leaders from many of the most successful fintechs and incumbent banks. This is shaping up to be our biggest event ever as sponsorship support is off the charts. You know you need to be there, so find out more and register at lendit.com. Today on the show, I'm delighted to welcome Laura Shin. She is a longtime journalist in the crypto space. In fact, she was the first serious journalist to actually go full-time covering crypto. She's also the host of the Unchained podcast, and most importantly, the author of a new book called The Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency Craze. It's basically a story on Ethereum. It sort of takes us through the history of Ethereum from the very, very beginning and uh, some of the milestones along the way. It reads more like fiction than uh, nonfiction because it's such an interesting saga with lots of conflict and twists and turns along the way. So we talk about uh, some of that in this conversation. You know, Laura also provides some of the background to the book. She also provides her thoughts on where crypto is going and what it really means for the rest of the financial world. It was a fascinating conversation. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Laura. Thanks for having me. Why don't we get started by giving the listeners a little bit of background about yourself and just maybe if you could weave into the background sort of how you first got interested in crypto. So I've been a journalist for over 20 years and I had covered a whole bunch of different things. But in 2015, I was covering personal finance and I was frankly like a little bored. (laughs) And my editors at Forbes, I I was at that time a contributor, uh, which is a freelancer. They said, hey, we have this idea to do a Forbes FinTech 50 list. Do you want to head up the list with another reporter? And so she and I decided to you know, do this together and we divided the list into categories and I took the category of digital currency and just became completely obsessed. And that was seven years ago. It'll be seven years ago in like two weeks. <laughs> so it's been the fastest and most fun seven years of my career. I just kind of became very obsessed with crypto and yeah, just kind of could not satiate my curiosity about it. And so people in crypto often call this falling down the rabbit hole. And that's mm-hmm. definitely what it was for me. For a brief period in there, I was a senior editor at Forbes. And at that time, when I was hired, they finally told me I could cover crypto full-time and I didn't have to write any more personal finance articles. (laughs) And I also launched my podcast in 2016. And I actually owned that from the beginning because I was a freelancer at Forbes at the time that I started it, even though I started it with them. And then in early 2018, someone who was helping me with the podcast told me that 
with the downloads that I had, I could charge X amount for sponsorships on it. And I had mm. had no idea because, you know, she was saying, well, this is what the other podcasts are charging and you're, you have way more downloads than anybody else. So that made me realize like, oh, I can quit this job at Forbes and I will then keep doing the podcast, but then spend the rest of my time working on a book. And that is how I published this book, which came out to a little over two months ago now. And my life has been a complete whirlwind ever since. <laughs> <laughs> right. And we're going to get into the book in some depth here. I, I read it and it really is a fascinating, fascinating read. So, but maybe first, I mean, I know we, we chatted actually right around that time in 2018 and uh, when you were about to jump off into the becoming really a, an entrepreneur than more than just a journalist. So what was that sort of leap like for you? How was it kind of, and I presume maybe you can also talk about did you own any crypto at the time? You've been covering this for a while. You could have actually done very well for yourself. But so tell us a little bit about that and the leap into entrepreneurship. Yeah. So when I worked at Forbes, there was a period when I owned Bitcoin and Ether. Forbes has a policy that if you cover something that you own, that you can disclose it. But then when I left, I wanted to be able to write for any publication that I wanted to. And many publications have a stricter policy than that where they would not let you cover something that you own. So I sold my Bitcoin and Ether. I also gave some away and donated. But basically, I haven't looked back. Writing is the most important thing to me. As much as I love crypto, I, it's definitely less important to me than being able to write for any top-notch publication I'd like to write for. But you've seen people that you've interviewed and talked to that were struggling financially and now they're billionaires, right? So that's... Uh, oh, yeah, <laughs> that's, for sure. That must be interesting. <laughs> yeah, except that... Even when I did buy a little, like journalists definitely compared to business people, they just don't make anywhere near as much money. So the amount that I put in, even now, if I kept it, like I wouldn't be anywhere near as wealthy as any of them because I didn't know that many. Right, right. (laughs) Got it. But anyway, in terms of the entrepreneurship, I actually have worked for myself for most of my career. I have freelanced just probably, I don't even know, like it's like maybe 60, 70% of my career, maybe 80 now. I really don't know. I just, for various reasons, I don't have the kind of personality where, you know, I really like working for others. So yeah, I just have actually mostly worked for myself. So when I quit that job at Forbes, I'd actually only been there for seven months. I was at Forbes total for roughly five years And most of that time was just freelancing for them. And, you know, it was just a small sliver of time where I was full time. So making that shift actually wasn't that difficult. It's just that now everything's so much bigger. The business is bigger. I have a lot more going on. So now I have all these different employees, which when I was a freelancer, I always, not always, but especially toward the later years, I might have had like one assistant just part time. But now I have, a lot more than that. And I recently had to hire some personal assistants because I am really struggling to keep up with everything. So, right, right. Yeah. Understood. Okay. So, then before we dive into the book, I'd like to sort of take a step back and get your perspective about, you know, you're deep in the weeds of the crypto world, but you're from the sort of traditional finance world. And so, I'd love to get your perspective on. What are people outside of crypto, what's the biggest misconception? I'm particularly interested in those in banking, traditional finance. What do you think is their biggest misconception today? 
So this is just a general misconception. I don't know if it's particular to the finance world, but it, it might be. <laughs> it's that crypto is just full of illicit activity and it's only for criminals. That's definitely far and away the probably number one thing that I hear that is actually really false and incorrect. Mm-hmm. The statistics show that at least for the year 2021, crypto crime accounted for 0.15% of all crypto transactions, whereas in the traditional financial world, it's something like 2 to 5% of all transactions. So, you know, it's an order of magnitude different. And I hear time and again that people think that it's only for criminals and I mean, even in mainstream publications, I will see this, you know, in publications with just huge readership and, you know, right on the front page of the website. And it's surprising because the actual statistics show the exact opposite. Interesting. Interesting. So then, you know, you decided to write a book. Why did you decide to focus on Ethereum? Obviously, there was the the original Bitcoin story, you know, Ripple, even Litecoin has an interesting beginning. I mean, what was it about Ethereum that you decided you really wanted to dive into that story? So when I went to write the book, I actually didn't set out to write a history of Ethereum. So I started working on that proposal maybe like in March 2018. And we had just come through that initial coin offering craze of 2017 and early 2018. Actually, it lasted long after that. But I'm just saying there was a bubble in terms of the prices that peaked in January 2018. And at that moment, I just knew I'd lived through something historic. You know, just in my own life, if I looked at my, how my own life had changed, I could feel that something new and different had happened. And I had had a front row seat. And the question that I wanted to answer with my book was, how did that happen? How did that craze happen? The initial conception of the book was actually quite different because I even had this whole Coinbase element. But then when I, after I had done all my reporting, when I went to write it, I realized, oh my gosh, if I include all this Coinbase reporting, then the book is going to be like 800 pages. (laughs) So I felt that Ethereum was really the crux of, you know, what was new and what enabled that initial coin offering craze. And so that's why the book reads mostly as a history of Ethereum. At at the end, when the initial coin offering craze happens, then of course it kind of opens out into a few other storylines. But yes, really Ethereum was the catalyst. And so that's why like 75, 80% of the book is about Ethereum. Right. And by the way, you know, Ethereum is the second largest crypto by market cap. It is clearly the leader in terms of attracting developers. There are some amazing statistics about how when developers try to work in Web3, as it's now called, 20 to 25% of them will work in Ethereum, which is crazy. And the Ethereum developer ecosystem is four times as large as the second largest. Mm. And there's all these different blockchains that are trying to compete with Ethereum. So it's just a leader in so many ways. And Ripple and Litecoin have not had anywhere near the success. They're really, frankly, people might call them like ghost chains, meaning they're they're chains that like, yeah, they have large market caps, but there's no real meaningful economic activity. Right, right. Okay, so then when you were writing the book, who did you have in mind as the reader? Because, and just to sort of preface it is, it's not a technical book. Like you don't need to be an Ethereum expert to understand pretty much everything that goes on in the book. And you explain some things where, when it does get a little technical. So who did you have in mind as the reader? Well, actually, (laughs) 
it's funny because I can tell the way you're phrasing this, you're thinking of somebody alive today. But actually, I was thinking of people 100 years from now. <laughs> I was thinking this is a historic moment and I want people to know what happened. And I want people in the future to look back and be able to understand what really brought this technology alive. So that's actually what I was thinking about. I was thinking about people in the future. And part of the reason also that I say that is, you know, I have a podcast where I invite people in the crypto world to come on my show and I interview them. And so one element, you know, that's <laughs> one ingredient that's necessary to do that podcast is access. And as I'm sure you're well aware of the way I wrote the book, I did not let that factor into the way I wrote anything. You know, if something happened, even if it didn't make somebody look good, if it's accurate, if I can verify it, then yeah, it was going to go in the book. And I, I'm sure there are certain people I've lost access to, but I'm just not going to let it bother me. I wanted the book to be as good as it could be. Right. But the sort of secondary person, sure, is an everyday person. I definitely did not want to write something that was only for crypto people. And so I actually had my like real life friends read one of the first drafts of the book. And there are people who definitely don't know anything about crypto. And they gave me invaluable feedback. You're right. There are so many technical things in the book. And that part, they really helped improve, frankly, you know, because they would tell me when they were confused and things like that. And they told me things like, every time you used an analogy, it was extremely helpful. So then I went back through and I added a ton more analogies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And it really is. It's like a, it's a gripping story. In some ways, it almost reads like fiction because it's just some of these things happen. I think it's just crazy, particularly in the early stages where it just felt like it wasn't a done deal that Ethereum was going to make it. And so, I mean, did it feel to you when you're sort of looking at it, like it's a real story. It's not just sort of a, a recounting of history. It felt like to me that it almost had a fiction feel to it. Was that your intention? Oh, yeah. Yeah. When I went in, I didn't know that. But once I had the reporting, then it was very clear that this was a very dramatic tale. There was a lot of drama. There were all these sagas. There was a lot of conflict. There were a lot of moments when it didn't look like Ethereum would make it. On top of that, by the end, I suddenly realized like, oh, these years that I chose to focus on, they ended up being a coming of age story for Vitalik, which I didn't know when I went in to write it. So there were just so many elements. Yeah, it just ended up being a very classic story, which, you know, one thing I will say is that I remember early on, my editor and I talked about how we wanted the book to be about the people and not like kind of a drier technological thing. Right. And so that's why we actually chose this title, The Cryptopians. We did actually look at a number of other titles that didn't kind of highlight the fact that this is like about people. This we felt was going to kind of just underscore that. And then I like the fact that, you know, it's like a made up word, right? But it's a made up word for two other words that are common, which are like utopian and dystopian. And you don't know which one. (laughs) 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 Exactly. So... Right. And so, so you mentioned Vitalik, Vitalik Buterin, who was really the, was his brainchild. And it's really interesting in the book because you start, I think you start it when he's in like high school and uh, talking a little bit about what he was like then, because he was pretty young when he, and he's still very young, obviously. But tell us a little bit about him. And I mean, he comes across in the book, you know, he's certainly an evolving character, but someone that pretty socially relatively naive. And you keep talking about how he's, you know, people are trying to manipulate him. Tell us a little bit about your sense of who he is and how he has grown and how, whether it was you know, really his ingenuity that sort of has been most responsible for the success of Ethereum. So Vitalik is 
to my mind, a very kind of pure person, very idealistic. And definitely in the beginning of the book, he's very naive. So I actually had gone back to his childhood and I talked a little bit about that. And so people, you know, get a sense that this is someone who really did not have social skills. And he came up with the idea for a theory when he was 19. And he sent the white paper out to several friends on the day that Bitcoin crossed $1,000 for the first time. Mm -hmm. So there was this sort of like magic in the air where all these crypto people were having these feelings of, oh my gosh, we can make money from this. And, you know, there were people who maybe bought Bitcoin at $1 and now they had 1,000x their initial investment. And so when they saw Ethereum, they really felt like, oh, you know, we can make money here. And Vitalik, he doesn't have that kind of character. He had this very idealistic notion about building something decentralized for the people. And, you know, this leads us to many of the early conflicts where there are people that are kind of more business-minded, or you could even say self-interested. And they and the people like Vitalik, which mainly is the other developers, they butt heads a lot. And Mm -hmm. there's all these conflicts between the business guys and the developers or the devs. And he could not see when people were trying to manipulate him. And countless people told me about how, because he's so conflict averse, he could never say no to anybody. And so what people would do is they would just kind of like hang around him a lot and like just be talking to him. And because he couldn't say no, they would basically get their way. And a lot of people felt that Vitalik couldn't even see that people had these ulterior motives. So the book just goes into kind of how this created a lot of the conflicts in Ethereum for years. And by the end, you know, finally, he's kind of wisened up a little bit. The one thing I would still say, though, is I do feel that that idealistic nature of Vitalik shows that he's a very evolved person. So even though he was naive, you could say naive, but because he was so pure and so evolved, it was like he couldn't even conceive of anybody who would have less pure motives. And so, yeah, there just were, you know, a number of people like that who were older. And yet they, in my opinion, were these like less evolved characters. What's his perspective on your book? As far as I know, I don't think he's read it. I think he has mixed feelings about it because it does reveal so much. It does. But one thing I just wanted to answer your question about whether or not Ethereum's success is due to Vitalik. You know, I wouldn't say single-handedly by any stretch because, as you know, the main builders were actually these other coders and Vitalik is really more the visionary. And certainly, you know, probably other coders could have coded it up, but in terms of actually getting it done and building it, like it wasn't Vitalik who did that. Mm -hmm. So in that regard, I do think it was a group effort. Right, right. Looking into crypto Twitter and particularly around sort of your book launch, I mean, obviously anyone who's out there like you are taking a stance, you get criticism. It's just part of having a profile uh, these days. But there's been some pretty vicious criticism, I think, of you on Twitter. What, Firstly, how has that been for you? And why do you think it struck a nerve with some people? I know you sort of, you did reveal probably some things about people that weren't very complimentary, but tell us a little bit about what the reaction's been like. You're really referring to a single incident, which is that... So one of the characters in the book, Charles Hoskinson, who is the founder of a new chain called Cardano, he told me and he's been... uh, Other people have reported that, you know, he said that he dropped out of a PhD program when he discovered Ethereum or got, you know, involved. I did a very rigorous fact-checking for my book. And so you know, this was just part of the standard fact-checking. And I found out actually the schools that he attended both say that he was an undergrad and he was not enrolled in a PhD. 
I have not found any school that has said that he was enrolled in a PhD. And so he tweeted that my book was a work of fiction, which I found very rich coming from him because not only does he appear to have lied about his education, but many, many, many people told me these stories of kind of tall tales that he told them saying that he was Satoshi Nakamoto or that he had been involved in DARPA or the army and been in Afghanistan and blah, blah. I mean, it just goes on and on. It's kind of people who haven't read the book. You will read about this because there's many of these tales. And so I just responded to him saying, hey, like, speaking of fiction, do you want to rectify the difference between what you're claiming about your education, what the schools say? (laughs) And I think a lot of Cardano people were really upset that I revealed something that he appears to have lied about. And so I actually, when you say like, I'm getting criticism, I actually don't think it has anything to do with me because a lot of these people will say that, for instance, I'm a shill for Ethereum. Okay, nobody who's read my book would call me a shill for Ethereum. Uh, So it's very obvious they didn't read my book and they're just upset that I found out this fact or what appears to be, you know, this fact that he lied about his education and they're just worried about their Cardano holdings decreasing. So I think that's basically it. But I really don't feel it has anything to do with me. It's just about them and their worries about their money bags. Okay. Okay. That's good. So (laughs) you talk about sort of the, you know, the running out of money piece. And then there was lots of challenges at the beginning. And then there was this big hack, the the Dow hack, which you write about extensively. So maybe you could tell a little bit about what actually happened there and how someone was able to steal a good chunk of the total of Ethereum. Well, the instant we're talking about the DAO hack, DAO is D-A-O, it stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. And now there are many DAOs, but at that time, for some reason, they just chose the name The DAO. And it was styled as a decentralized venture fund, meaning that the DAO token holders would basically kind of vet these different proposals that would come in front of the DAO. And for any that they approved, the DAO would give that venture money. And then when the venture began making money, it would send some of the proceeds back to the DAO token holders. And people were so enthralled by this idea. By the way, the DAO crowd sale happened maybe like about nine months after Ethereum had launched. So it was a very new time in Ethereum. And it's amazing because you know I actually consider Ethereum difficult to use now. And yet, even at that time, it was like way more difficult to use. And yet, it went on to become the highest crowdfunded project of all time. <laughs> and it raised $140 million. And that was about 15% of all Ether. And then within the span of a few short weeks, someone hacked 31% of the Ether in the DAO. And so now this malicious actor had 5% of all Ether. And this was truly the only existential crisis for Ethereum. But essentially, the community you know, just was really at a loss for what to do. They had multiple different options. And as time went on, they kept having to nix different options because they just weren't going to work. And finally, they were left with what many people dubbed the nuclear option. And because it was the nuclear option, there were many in the community who felt that Ethereum should not do it anyway. And just to give people a sense of why this wasn't a nuclear option, you could sort of imagine a situation in which Apple's most popular app is hacked in the App Store. So the nuclear option would be for Apple to do something risky to itself in order to save that app. 
And that's basically what this nuclear option was for Ethereum, that Ethereum was going to do something risky to itself in order to save its most popular app, which was the DAO. And yes, it did result in kind of the worst case scenario happening, which is that Ethereum essentially gave birth to its evil twin in the course <laughs> of of executing this nuclear option. And that evil twin is now called Ethereum Classic. But the upshot of all that for the hacker was that the hack essentially got erased on Ethereum, but the hacker's money was retained on Ethereum Classic. Of course, it was worth a lot less because Ether Classic coins were worth a lot less, but still they they had access to 3.6 million Ether Classic, even though they had been stripped of their Ether. Right, right. That's what's called a hard fork, right? Exactly. Yeah, that nuclear option. Right, right. And so then what's interesting to me, I was reading earlier this year that you actually figured out the person behind the hack. And can you maybe, I know it's a pretty detailed story, but can you, you know, just tell us a little bit about one, how you figured it out and yeah, just sort of the process there. And, and I think you announced it maybe when you figured it out, you only announced it this year, right? I announced it the day we published my book. Right. Okay. There you go. Yeah. Good move. <laughs> yes. Yes. I do think it helps drive some book sales, which was great. <laughs> So yeah, this ended up being sort of like the meteor out of nowhere. Basically, I was in the last stages of editing my book. And when you finish a book, there are what are called three final passes with the publisher. And I was supposed to turn in the second to last pass, which at this point, I'm supposed to probably make maybe a 100 changes to the book or less. And one of my sources reached out to me and he's Brazilian and he had been involved in the DAO and in the rescue. And he said, hey, the Brazilian federal government started an investigation into the DAO when the hack occurred six or what was then five years ago. And by extension, they opened an investigation into me because I was involved in it. And they want to interview me. And I thought I need a report to kind of exonerate myself. And, you know, these reports can be a bit expensive. So he thought, who else could use this information? And he thought of me. And so he got a discount and I credited this company, CoinFirm, in the book. And we basically went over this report, which contained the transactions that the DAO hacker had used to convert their Ether Classic, since the Ether Classic was not very usable, not easy to turn into money, into Bitcoin, which was at that time and still is today the most liquid cryptocurrency. And the thing is, because everybody knew that those were the hacked coins, this person really only had one exchange that they could use. And it was an exchange that didn't take any personally identifying information. But because of that, it also restricted you to trades of $2,500 or less. And so the hacker was doing many, 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 many conversions you know, under that limit. And we kind of followed the pattern of these cash outs. And we noticed that they followed an Asian morning to night schedule. And the thing is that I had actually kind of followed through on an investigation that somebody else had started back in 2016, where there were some suspicious transactions that were identified. And I interviewed all those people and I kind of looked into what was actually happening with those transactions. Like there was the theory about what was happening. And then I, I found out what was actually happening. And then I interviewed them all. And the way I had written the book up until that point was that I explained why they came under suspicion explained what I discovered about what their transactions actually meant, and then finally interviewed them and, and gave all their comments. 
And so I did not say anything conclusive about who did it. I just sort of left the reader to decide and just kind of basically showed I did the homework. I finished this investigation that had been started. Mm-hmm. Well, when I got you know this new report, I was supposed to turn in this second pass. And so I said to my publisher, hey, can I have two more weeks? And they were like, no, 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 no. Like, you know, this book is basically done. And we'd actually already delayed it once for various reasons. And so, you know, it was kind of absurd that I was saying I needed more time. However, I sent the information anyway to another firm I had been working with called Chain Analysis. Oh, and by the way, the, the one thing I just wanted to mention was the different people that I had you know, kind of put in the book, the ones who had fallen under suspicion, they were all based in Europe. So the Asian morning to evening cash out schedule did not match their online activity or their geographic location. So that was, you know, to me, just something confusing. And then the other thing about the Asian morning to night schedule is that I had gotten a customer service email from the Dow hacker. It was an email that they had sent to Shapeshift when they were kind of putting all their coins in the right places to execute this attack. Mm-hmm. And I could see from their email that they were a fluent English speaker. It was very obvious because it wasn't even just like complete sentences in English, but it was in shorthand. So it'd be like, instead of saying, I'm going to the grocery store, do you want anything? I'd be like, heading to the grocery store, want anything? Just, right. you know, another level of fluency. So I sent the information to Chain Analysis and I had actually already gotten a ton of information from them for many, many other things in the book. And they were not responding. And so for for I forget how long I just kept hounding them. And I just was like, oh my gosh, these people are never going to talk to me again. I'm completely harassing them, you know. And then finally they reached out and the attacker had sent those Bitcoin that they received through what's called a wasabi mixer, which is a way of obscuring the trail of your coins. It just basically mixes your transactions with a bunch of other people's transactions. And then on the other side, it's just harder to kind of, you know, follow the trail backward. Now, Chainalysis had the ability to demix at least some types of those transactions. And so they followed the Dow hackers' Bitcoins to four different exchanges. Now, exchanges are where you will get an account name, address, you know, et cetera. Obviously, no private citizen, including myself as a journalist, can just call up any exchange and say, hey, whose account is you know right. is that? Or like, what's their name? What's their email address? But through a source, I was able to find out that those coins were converted to Grin, which is a privacy coin, and withdrawn to a Grin node. And that Grin node had the name grin.toby.ai. And this person that I believe was behind the DAO attack is somebody named Toby Honish. He used Toby AI on his profiles pretty much everywhere, like Reddit, Medium, Twitter, GitHub, you know, you name it. it. That was the alias. I think I've covered 16 of these. And the other thing is that we saw the IP address for that Grin node was also hosting what's called a Bitcoin Lightning node, which is this kind of layer on top of Bitcoin for cheap transactions. And that Grin node was named 10X. And this person, Toby Honish, had founded a company called 10X. And so then once I had this identity, which, you know, seemed quite strong, I went back and I found out what he was doing at the time of the DAO hack. And he was very into the DAO. He identified flaws in the DAO. He reached out to the creators about those flaws. 
they said, oh, okay, we'll fix these. But they didn't feel it was like urgent to do. Mm-hmm. So then he begins writing these blog posts where he has like multiple exclamation points about these flaws. And indeed, some of these flaws are what forced Ethereum to hard fork. After the hack, he was tweeting things that were pro letting the hacker keep their coins and anti hard fork. <laughs> so, you know, pretty much everything fit from, you know, end to end, beginning to end. And by the way, he is a fluent English speaker and he at that time was living in Singapore. He may still live there. I just, I don't know where he lives now. Are the authorities, uh, is there anything happening? That would be for them to answer. But what I can say, or what I do need to add here is that Toby did send me an email saying that he wanted to say that my statement and conclusion were factually inaccurate. And then he offered to give me more details if I wanted. And I asked him for those details but he did not respond. And we sent him emails also for the Forbes article. And there was no response to that. Right, right. Okay, okay. Well, moving on, you end the book in in January 18. It was really the, the height of the first bull run. Was there a specific reason to end it then? Or why didn't you sort of take it a little bit further into the future or you know, closer to today's time? Yeah. I mean, since I wanted the book to answer that question of how the initial coin offering craze happened, and that was the climax of it, then it felt like that was the moment to end the book. It just follows a natural story arc where there's building of tension and then you have the climax and then the denouement. So that just seemed like a very obvious ending point. Right. right. Okay. Before I let you go, a couple more things I want to ask you. There's a lot of talk in Ethereum circles about the merge. I know you're very well aware of sort of the the people and, and what's happening there. Can you explain what the merge is and why it's happening? I'm sure you probably have more mainstream listeners of your show and the mainstream community is definitely much more concerned about the environmental impact of what are known as proof of work blockchains, Mm -hmm. which are blockchains where in order to provide security to the network, a lot of electricity is used and some of it is not clean (laughs) electricity. Mm -hmm. So Ethereum currently runs via this, you know, proof of work consensus algorithm it's called And they're switching to something called proof of stake, which is much more environmentally friendly, doesn't use anywhere near as much electricity. And so what they've done is they already have this new proof of stake blockchain going, but there's no economic activity happening on it. They just wanted to have this period of people basically doing the staking, which is part of this proof of stake where they deposit a certain amount in Ether and then they will earn interest and there's, you know, kind of different levels of interest based on how much Ether is in, has been deposited for staking and blah, blah, blah. But anyway, the merge is when they now move all the economic activity in Ethereum over to this proof-of-stake blockchain. And the reason why it's so tricky, it's often been described as swapping out the engine on an airplane in mid-flight. And when you think about it, it's not just the economic activity happening on Ethereum itself. But there are so many coins on Ethereum. There's mm-hmm. NFTs on Ethereum. There's DAOs, other DAOs on Ethereum. There's like, you know, beyond the uh, economic activity on Ethereum itself, there's all the other economic activity that it's supporting. So it's a very, very tricky procedure. They are definitely taking their time with it, though. They're being incredibly cautious. It was delayed yet again, which a lot of people made fun of them for. But I think it just goes to show how careful they're being with it. Right, right. And it is supposed to happen later this year, although that's not a guarantee we keep hearing. So I want to end with just get your thoughts on when you step back and look at sort of not just Ethereum, but crypto in general and uh, 
you know, how right now the impact on the financial system has been, I don't know, I would say minor overall, if you look in the whole scheme of things. But what do you think is the long-term impact of crypto and how do you think it's going to play out? I truly think that the number one biggest impact that crypto will have is in this kind of decentralized business model or in decentralization. And but you know, the way that I like to describe this is if you think about Bitcoin, so I actually don't know what the market cap is right now, but it's probably near $1 trillion, somewhere in that ballpark. And there's only a few companies in history that have achieved a market cap of a trillion dollars or more. Mm-hmm. Bitcoin did this without having a CEO or a board or hiring any employees. And the way that Bitcoin achieved this was by having this coin at the center that was incentivizing people to do things that would help grow the network. So for instance, a lot of people have heard probably about mining and mining is you know, this process by which people can win new Bitcoins. But the thing is that when they do that, they are adding security to the Bitcoin network. So instead of Bitcoin having to like hire an IT department, it just incentivizes people to add their computer power to the network. And then that makes it harder for anybody to kind of attack the network, basically. So the main attack there that people would be concerned about is what's known as a 51% attack, which is where somebody commandeers more than 51% of the network or adds 51% of the power in the network and then tries to change some of the transactions. You know, I could give like many other examples of like ways that either Bitcoin or other coins have been designed to basically have different people provide services to that blockchain without having to actually hire anyone to do it. And I think we're going to see a lot more of these. And I really think it's going to shake things up. Okay. We'll have to leave it there, Uh, Laura. Really fascinating chatting with you. Congratulations on the book. Yeah. Just really, really think it's such a fascinating story. And I'll obviously be linking to it in the show notes. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. To me, really one of the most interesting things that I think about Ethereum is that Laura shared there, there's four times the number of developers on Ethereum than the next most popular blockchain. And that to me is really why I'm so bullish. And I am I am bullish in full disclosure. I own a few ETH, but I'm bullish on really the the future of Ethereum and how I think, you know, with decentralized finance, how it's really being built on Ethereum. And it's going to be, I think, such an important part of the financial system. That's why I think everybody should read this book to be able to understand sort of how it really came to be and what what it means. And it's a great story. It's a saga that takes lots of twists and turns along the way, but it really, it's an easy read. You'll come out of it with a better understanding of Ethereum and its place in the finance world. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening, and I'll catch you next time. Bye.